The ideas expressed in this recording are by no means a manner of denouncing the existence of anyone transitioning or an attempt to deny the validity of anyone's subjective experiences. A path that provides insight for anyone to learn their own peace is a path worth traveling, and the strength it takes is admirable. This project for me is more of an admission of failure to complete an objective that I had worked very, very hard on. It seems the understanding of self that I was seeking resided in the process, and not in the end result. Expected value of a random variable is the theoretical mean of the random variable. It is not based on sample data, it is based on the distribution of the random variable. So the expected value is a parameter and not a statistic. Welcome back to the Brubaker Brothers The Variance Engine with our first series, One Year as a Woman. I am Jason and this is a subjective autobiographical monologue of my experiences during my transition from male to female and the subsequent detransition that followed. In the first episode, I retold portions about my youth up through the point where I had been allowed access to hormone replacement therapy. It was a tough time putting together all the details from over the years, and it was even more difficult to paint the picture of everything I wanted to say on that timeline while trying to skip over a lot of the other circumstances and detrimental things that were taking place in parallel to the impact that I had for my search for my own identity. I'm going to start this out by reading a quote from Carl Jung, which I stumbled upon during the deep dive I took searching for myself during this life which is yet to come to an end. Too many still look outward, some believing in the illusion of victory and of victorious power, others in treaties and laws, and others again in the overthrow of the existing order. But still too few look inward to their own selves, and still fewer ask themselves whether the ends of human society might not be best served if each man tried to abolish the old order in himself. This quote speaks volumes to me in each of the times throughout life that I've encountered it during my philosophical and existential journeys. The meditations I've had studying the works of Carl Jung, his theories on archetypes, the unconscious mind, and the universal subconscious brought me to my readings on spiritual alchemy and psychology. It was a topic that Jung wrote on at length in his life where he proposed the process of individuation, which in short is where the individual self develops out of an undifferentiated unconscious. This metaphorical and esoteric ritual for me had become similar in my internal landscapes as the alchemical wedding roughly described and very subjectively interpreted by me during the process. For the sake of cohesion and parable, some of the terms I will be using moving forward are going to be alchemical definitions for points of reference along the path. Also presume I'm making a lot of air quotes. There are a lot of things on this script in quotes, and I don't wish to break the flow by announcing those quotes every time. The second part of the series, The Alchemical Wedding, is going to be broken up into a few parts, the first of which is called Blackening. These parts of a larger whole cover the periods from September 13, 2017 until September 10, 2018, which is a few days shy of one year, but it's where I derived the name for the series from. The amount of insight I gained from this year was so invaluable to me as a human, philosophically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, 
It's hard to believe how much a short period of time can affect you until you find it within yourself to use any time period to evolve, to work through the weight you carry to a positive end, instead of utilizing negative coping mechanisms and other self-defeating methods of avoiding the gnashing teeth on your soul. Previously unmentioned in the last episode, because the relevancy to that portion of the story is the fact that during my time up through when I started my hormone replacement therapy, I was also a functional binge drug user. The relevancy will become much clearer later on in this series. The statistics for trans folks and drug use were harrowing in the last survey I've read, and I didn't comparatively find it too much of a surprise either. I had spent so much time trying to find anything I could to deal with the constant conflict that was taking place inside of me and the intoxicating lure of anything that would make me feel a little more calm or put me into a different mindset. It was a port in a storm. I don't condone drug use, but I understand from experience why one could be drawn to it. And with myself and many other addicts in recovery, we are still drawn towards the artificial euphoria that's so hard to find within a society that is so desperately manufactured and mechanical. The time during my first few weeks on hormones was the most intense change I had ever emotionally undergone since my whole life had exploded almost a year prior. It was different. I had spent a large portion of this time curled up in bed, trying to understand these amazing differences that were overtaking my senses. Around the third day, I had started to notice that my peripheral vision had expanded. I was no longer viewing life through my eyes as looking down a tunnel. My physical and metaphorical focus had been changing. Things began smelling so much more complex. My nipples started to get significantly more sensitive, and the undeveloped mammary glands in my breasts started to wake up, which was extremely painful. I had still been reading and participating on transforms during the first month or so, on an account that's long since gone dormant. During my time on these forums, I kept stumbling across members that were very hateful about baby trans folks, which is a term that some transitioning people may say about those who are just getting started in the process. It seemed very toxic and counterproductive to me in an extremely small community, roughly 1% of the population of the last survey, to be so negative. I kept reading the term trans-trendy, which was absolutely disgusting to me. My empathy spoke. How could anyone decide that they were going to endure the things that I had because of a trend? There's a lot of misinformation out there about every single subject in today's world of hyperconnectivity and crowdsourced repositories of information. In some portions of the world, there are active social wars being waged against trans people, especially trans women of color. I had begun to think to myself that I had found a far more negative community than I once anticipated, so I started to pull myself away from all the infighting and started focusing on the woman that I felt that I was. My euphoria of belonging was starting to decay. I had been following feminizing self-care routines to further my attractiveness. Social femininity has such brutal standards on beauty and attractiveness imposed upon it, and I've had 33 years of developing under the guidance of testosterone to fight against. There have been a few people who I had trusted up and into that point in my life who began to be very misogynistic and negative towards any of the feminizing rituals I had been attempting. No woman wants to hear how ugly they are, especially the woman that I am. I'm not certain as to where this aspect of affirmation of self comes from, but I've learned where the pain of it resided. I was older when I started my transition, so the end goal was projected as not being fully developed as I had dreamed about. I was only a few weeks into my treatments, but I had already been shamed on my potential at blending in public as a woman. The dream about validations I had longed for were beginning to erode. What had I gotten myself into? 
The depth of emotion I was feeling was something previously unattainable, but the same nihilistic void began to creep into my mind. I fell into a serious depression as I could feel myself beginning to slowly start to doubt myself very early on in my transition. I had become erratic at times. I had not been doing counseling as it had been suggested prior to my approval for HRT. The only way I got away with continuing to get my medications was that I had been seeing a therapist for counseling and EMDR sessions prior to my approval. I had decided that lying to my support system was a good idea, which to the contrary is never a good plan. I wasn't getting any better. I had allowed myself to become excluded from my support system by my own self-defeating behavior. I was getting slowly but steadily worse with my mental health. One afternoon, maybe mid-October, the weather was decent out and I had spent a large portion of my day fighting with unemployment and the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission about the career I had lost a few months prior. A partner and I had been looking at a house that we were going to buy together to take the relationship to a new level of commitment. I wasn't certain that I wanted to fight with him for the rest of my days, but it was a nice place, and it was more than affordable. Even still, the stress of the recent downward spiral had me to a self-destructive point. I decided to walk towards the edge of the property that we had been living on, which was a nice sized lot. There was a chair on top of the hill where the property line was. I took a hatchet with me just in case I would have ran across anything dangerous, as the day had a certain feeling of impending doom upon it. As I sat on this chair, I let my mind wander and my heart feel the weight of all the struggles I had been having with everything. As I became peeling away the layers of protective armor that I had built around myself, I had started to feel the pain of the loss of the previous life I had, the current life I was in, and how much different I had expected things to be. I had ritualistic contemplations of removing my ring finger from my left hand when my first marriage had ended, so that I could symbolically be spared the pain of the ritual again. My partner was seemingly committed to me, or so he told me, which I will elaborate on further, later. And I didn't wish to lie about the state I was in. Everything had come into question in my life at this point. In this place, even hope left me to my own machinations. The sound of the memories in my head and a fury of tears filled my eyes as I found myself working the hatchet into my skin around the perimeter of my ring finger. It wasn't the sharpest of blade, nor decisions either. The dull blade of the hatchet barely made a mark on my skin. In my state of escalated self-injurious behavior, I had considered the shotgun beside the bed, which was only a few minutes walk from my current position. But that spot I had cleared out in my heart for you began to warm up and my feet stayed planted under the tree like roots as I remained in the chair I had been sitting in. I could deny this man his commitment. I could deny him anything I had wanted to, although having to brace for his voice and his temperament. But I couldn't deny you my presence. Even as broken as I was, I still had a place I belonged, even if it wasn't with you daily. I had a responsibility to you to find how to fix this as best I could. This period of blackening I had been in was dark, and almost became absolute. But somewhere amidst it, I had finally started to find myself. I had begun to de-escalate from the state I was in, and I drove the hatchet into the stump that was beside the chair. I lit a cigarette as I cleaned my face up and began focusing on different ways to rectify this strange and difficult landscape I had found myself in. Some of the days after this were a blur, except for a dream that I remembered that was so pivotal to me in all of this. I'm going to try to share the pieces I recalled when I wrote them out the morning I awoke from it. I had come to in a large foyer of a wonderfully constructed building. 
My eyes were focused downwards, as if I had fallen asleep in a seated position, and I was looking at myself wearing a beautiful dark purple gown. It appeared sleek and form-fitting, yet some of the details of my proportions were hidden to me. Out of the corner of my eye, in a chair perpendicular to myself, I saw an androgynous figure seated with its legs crossed. The being's head was rather human, yet only possessed a pair of eyes. None of its other features were obvious or even present at all. I met the gaze of the eyes of this being, and I felt a hand touch my bare shoulder and a whisper in my ear. Hey, the voice said. You fell asleep while we were waiting. I knew this voice immediately. It was his voice. The first man I had ever loved was speaking to me as if we were heading to some formal event together. I quickly apologized and rose to my feet as I turned to nod to the person I made eye contact with just before being rousted from my seating position. The androgynous figure was busy looking at something else with a distance in their eyes. They were supposed to have added your books when they built this library. You want to go find them? His voice posed a question about details that I hadn't recalled. I hadn't wrote any books. I curiously thought to myself aside a flash of his corpse covered in a silken white sheet. Absolutely. I'm just not sure where they are, I replied. I don't remember writing any books, my inner monologue continued. I guess we will have to look around until we find them, he said. He didn't look familiar. A lot of the details of his appearance were hidden from my view, but he felt familiar. The man placed his hand into the pocket of his black overcoat and took me by the arm with the other one. I wriggled my feet in the fancy shoes I had found myself wearing as we began walking. The beautiful violet dress I was wearing flowed elegantly as my inner monologue became visual. This is a really nice dress, floated past my vision as we walked towards the wooden entry arch into what, presumably from where I was standing, was a museum or a library of sorts. The arch was covered in strings of symbols, enough of which were recognizable by pattern and structure to be determined as words in different languages. They say no borrowing, he says, without missing a beat. You're making that up, I said playfully. No, it's the one rule they have listed anywhere, he continued. I looked back to see if the figure was still in the foyer to get an additional opinion on the translation. The human figure was no longer seated in the foyer. We passed through the archway as my vision became filled with bookshelves as far as my eyes could see. A set of twin spiral staircases traveled upward to a second floor which housed even more bookshelves. If I recall from the map, Sciences is on the second floor, he said. On the walk towards the staircases, a statue of the Greek goddess Hermaphroditus was poised, laying partially covered on a marble bed. I had recalled seeing the statue before, from somewhere removed from the time I was currently in, and thinking she was beautifully carved. Maybe I'm not as different as I feel, rang through my head, as I hear, I'm anxious to find your books, from that familiar masculine voice. Okay. The stairs leading upwards to the second floor are a beautiful dark hardwood with lustrous rich natural markings throughout them. Gripping the handrail made of the same type of wood, we begin our ascent up the stairs, my eyes focused on the stairs themselves instead of all of the wonderment around me. Once we reach the top of the staircase, a huge wing dedicated to all the various forms of sciences and mathematics came into view. We will have to walk until we find the section for alchemy, he said with a distinct certainty in his voice. As we walk the main path through the sciences wing, my vision cuts in and out, obscuring certain things from view. 
I can only make out certain languages on the signs that hang above certain aisles. Some of them I could only assume were languages and sciences that I had yet encountered. Somewhere, off in the distance, I could hear a familiar whirring noise that I often associate and hear under fluorescent lighting. I had started to notice myself getting upset by all the obfuscations I was encountering visually. All of this knowledge, and I can't manage to see well enough to read any of it, I had thought. I reached towards my face, making sure that I had my corrective lenses on. It's not your glasses, he says reassuringly as we continued walking. Maybe it's just the lighting then. I replied after another moment of curiosity. I'm going to stop for a moment in the retelling of this dream just to add a little sidebar in retrospect to the times I've spent reading over this dream sequence I wrote and uh, the amount of time I spent analyzing it. I've had a lot of other dreams about this library at certain times throughout my life, but none were as extensive as this one, nor did I actually like travel into it as I had in this one. The androgynous figures I had noticed in the foyer had also come around in my dreamscapes before, so I had a certain amount of prior experiencing trying to decipher what their presence meant to the overall significance of the dream. Having stated that, I'm going to continue with the second half of the dream sequence as I have it wrote down. After passing numerous aisles of bookshelves comprised of the same dark wood the stairs and the handrailing were, we came across an aisle with the word alchemy on the sign above it. The previous obfuscations seemed to have faded for the moment, since I could during this time read the majority of the titles from the spines of the books. As I progressed down the aisle, I was able to read the title of a book I had remember studying some from a time separate from the current one. With a slight amount of amusement, I remember saying to this man that was accompanying me, I remember studying this book during university. I'd learned a lot from it, but the professor was rather rude. Well, what did the professor do specifically, he asked me. His face still obscured when I turned to look towards him as he was still hunting for my books. I replied, he told me I had a very masculine stature for a woman. My shoulders were very broad. Well, maybe you do, he said matter-of-factly as he pointed to a few books with my name upon the spine as the author. There they are. I was struck with amazement, partially at my companion's reply and partially at seeing a few books on this beautiful yet foreign bookshelf. I don't remember publishing any books at all, I thought, as a shock guides my hand towards the rightmost book in hopes they are organized in chronological order. I pulled the book from the shelf, the title obscured from visual memory, but in that moment it didn't seem to affect me. As I flipped through the pages, I found more and more sections of blurred words, but I could feel that I was following a logical progression towards the answer, something like following the steps of a math problem. Look towards nature was legible through all the fuzzy words and formulas. Continuing to leaf through the pages, everything else became blurry again, yet the feeling of following a logical progression was still with me. Reaching the end of the book, I turned towards the companion who had walked with me, his appearance now unfamiliar and still visually obscured. Did you find what you were searching for? he asked, but I noticed now that his voice was detached in time from his mouth and the remainder of his notable sensory organs from the head were missing. Yes, it seems to make sense now, I continued, as if a thorny-like curiosity had been removed from deep within my being. Excellent. We'd better get moving back towards the entrance. I think the library is about to close. The voice still seemed to emanate from in and around the mouth of this androgynous figure that I now found myself traveling with. You're right, I remembered saying lovingly, 
still facing the figure as if searching for the eyes of the man I thought I was traveling with. The lighting begins to shudder as the ambient whirring that had been present now becomes off-tempo. My focus diverts to the change. You can't take that book with you. Remember the words on the archway? He reminded me. I was certain that you had made that up, I said, as I placed the book back on the shelf. The bookshelves had oddly started to appear shades brighter than I had remembered. The grain in the wood had also changed slightly. The patterns were less rigid. A strange symbol flashed in my vision, superimposed over the surroundings. The lights are going out soon, I had thought to myself. The lights are going out soon, the masculine voice said. Now seemingly fully disembodied from the vessel it resonated from previously. Strange timing, I remembered saying aloud, but not in the dream. We joined arms again and started back down the path we had traveled to find the books. Guess we can't go check out the mathematics section, I thought, observing the lighting flickers and the off-tempo whirring. The mathematics section is out of the question. The man's voice resonated with a certain sternness in the inside of my ears. Grasping what felt like my lover's arm, we started walking briskly towards the main hall of this massive library. Passing back through the sections previously traveled seems daunting, not realizing just how far into the wing we had gone. A proposed solution to the alchemical puzzle now filling the wound where the thorn had once resided. All the obscured bookshelves of lighter color filled with knowledge unknown no longer bothered me. The sense of fleeing from the darkness of this strange place drove our feet. I had a sense of clarity where I had needed it, refreshing my resolve. I hope the me that wrote that book is correct, I remembered thinking as we reached the mezzanine that overlooked the great hall of this library. The view filled my vision, washed over my senses as the off-tempo whirring had ceased completely within my ears. I looked back one more time towards the science's wing, which now only contained darkness. The white marble floor seemed to have a glittering within it from what little ambient lighting was shining in. My vision caught the glimpse of a sign I had previously not noticed with the word epistemology wrote on it. We started descending the staircase, which was now also a few shades lighter in color, and the species had changed to one similar of the bookshelves in the alchemy section. Once we reached the ground level, the marble floor here was sparkling as well, seemingly catching the light from somewhere unbeknownst to me. I fully expected to be in the room I had ascended from, full of statues and other monoliths celebrating skill, education, and knowledge, but the previous layout was different from the one I had found myself in. All the statues were gone, and the archway was located rather close to the bottom of the stairs. I wonder what happened to all the statues, I thought to myself, as all these patterns of obscured words and formulas were still bouncing around inside of my visual memory. We can sit for a moment once we get to the foyer before we leave, if you'd like. You look exhausted, the voice said. Sounds good to me. This must be a massive library. I got played out from just one section, I replied to him as we approached the wooden archway, the color of which had not changed. Absolutely no borrowing is written in my native language on a section of the archway previously unnoticed. There it is, I exclaimed, pointing towards the statement. I told you I wasn't lying, he said, as he poked his elbow into my side jokingly. The view of the darkening foyer, with its beautiful high-backed chairs along the wall, provided me with a sense of impending relief. We sat down on the right side of the foyer, and I released a sigh as I watched the elegant violet gown I had been wearing follow my form into the seated position. 
It was nice seeing you in this light. The voice now, the same familiar one from previously. My eyes became very heavy and tedious to blink as the foyer began to get blurry around me. The warm sparkling of the marble floor filled my vision. It was at this point I awoke renewed from the dream I had just had, the sun brightly coming through the window into my eyes, the taste of last night's drink still present in my mouth. I felt the chafing from the body shaver and the other feminizing clothing I had fallen asleep in as I was wrapped tightly around the pillow. It's hard to describe how things like memory and sensory exclusion work inside of the dreamscape or how perception works. Hopefully it made some amount of sense to follow. For me, my own interpretation of my dreams, the androgynous figures with specific sensory parts pronounced on them, stand as guides to which parts of the dream are the most revealing in what it is that I am working on. I know the sequence itself, for me, made far more sense than I'll be able to convey, but for the sake of further parts of telling this story, I had to add that dream sequence. And that was the second episode in the Variance Engine series, One Year as a Woman, brought to you by the Brubaker Brothers. If you enjoyed what you hear or have some kind of feedback, please feel free to email us at theproblematicast at gmail.com and use the Variance Engine in the subject line. If you haven't yet, please tell your friends to check us out on Patreon, where this series is being made available to our patrons first. Thank you all who have subscribed thus far and who have stuck it out through these really, really complicated episodes.